never fails. I'm working from home today. Unless I need to record, it is dead silent outside. The minute we get on to try to record, like everybody needs to mow their grass all of a sudden. I'm like, why are all these people home mowing their grass in the middle of the day? Well, they see you go to the microphone, get your microphone out, and they're like, Reed's ready to record. We got to make sure we're on the podcast. Like, I kid you not, I looked outside a second ago, lawnmower running unattended in the driveway. Not even in the grass. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode 333. That's Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith. Uh, certainly appreciate you joining us for yet another week and another episode of Touchpoint. Before we get into today's uh, show and topic, quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health, touchpoint.health is where you can learn more about the show, the episodes, all that kind of fun stuff. But while you're there, you'll see something called the TPS report up in the top navigation. Had a lot of office references this week. So anyway, timely, uh, the <laughs> TPS report, office space, I should say. Office yes, space office space. Not, yep. not the office, although those as well. Uh, anyway, sign up for that name, email address. You get one email, one email each Monday from us with uh, a handful of articles to start your week. So hopefully that's a little value add for you, the listener. Pause here, let you go do that and be back with today's show. That's what he said. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is, and Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews, and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand, they demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Today's topic is a little bit different than the ones we've typically been doing. It's it's more focused on the business side of healthcare or particularly health systems. And it kind of came out of a conversation you and I were having a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about how other organizations and other in other industries have been able to respond to things a little bit different than health systems have. And I, I think you and I may, I, I forget which, which one of us, but we kind of made a comment that health systems are different than other businesses. They're not really a typical business. I forget which one of us made that comment. Do you, do you remember? I don't know, but if you, the listener liked it, it was probably me. I <laughs> disagree. It was Chris. 
No, it, it is. And I always hate to be that guy like, yeah, but, you know, we're yeah. different kind of a thing. The difference, however, is there is a kind of intermediary. There's there's a payer that's involved, right? Like right. nowhere else are you going and buying services or items and you don't know what they cost and somebody else is potentially paying for it. That's, I think, the, the differentiating factor here of is from a consumerism standpoint, at least, how I think about it. I would agree with you on that. I think that's one of the most significant things from a consumer perspective. But there are also kind of structural things about health systems as a business entity that actually differ from other types of businesses. And so let's start off today's conversation asking the question, why are health systems not like other businesses? And of course, whenever we have an open-ended question like that, Reed, we always turn to our never-fail answer, which two years ago is Wikipedia, and today is ChatGPT. Between Wikipedia and ChatGPT, Chris and I don't really do much. (laughs) No, this is interesting, though, because, again, very quickly, you can get a sense of the sentiment that's out there, right? So, again, not saying these are exactly point by point or word for word exactly what we necessarily agree in, but we'll kind of chat through them here real quick. The first thing that it pulled out was purpose and mission, right? So that the primary objective of a healthcare system is to promote and maintain the health of individuals and communities. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with that. Uh, I would say that's actually probably, obviously, why ChatGPT came up with it. Part of people's mission statements, you know, when you go to like hospital websites and things like that, probably talks about our patients and the communities that we serve, you know, et cetera. Yeah, they go on even further. They say rather than solely focusing on profit generation. Here's where we can kind of, you know, mince words if you're a for-profit or a non-profit health system. But I think overall what they're saying as they follow on here to say that their mission is to provide quality healthcare services, improve patient outcomes, and ensure public health, which makes the social responsibility a little bit different than other businesses. I kind of agree with that. I mean, I think there is something to our purpose and our mission that distinguishes us from, let's say, an Amazon or or even a, a Facebook or something like that. Well, I mean, I, and I've talked about this for a long time. It's why I, after 20 years, still do it, right? So it's not even just the clinicians or the, even the patient-facing folks that feel some sort of a mission or purpose as it relates to you know the work that they do. So it make, makes a ton of sense. Second thing that they call out here is the complexity and the regulation. Some of that I kind of mentioned a minute ago, but certainly it's, it's an intricate world that we live in, right? So the strict regulatory framework, how we're paid, you know, those types of things, we have to comply with a lot of regulations and standards around, you know, this is why we talk about quality and patient safety and privacy and all of these things, right? It, it makes it somewhat complex versus like a consumer good product where it, it's a retail transaction, right? Yeah. So again, there's some regulation here that even limits our ability to even perform or, or offer the service, you know, depending on you talking about like CON process and, you know, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Now, we're not the only regulated industry that's out there. Think about financial, et cetera. But in this particular case, I think that is a, an added piece here. The third thing they pointed out, and this is an interesting distinguishing factor that ChatGPT wrote out, patient-centered approach. 
Let me hmm. uh, let me read back to you what what they specifically said. Healthcare is inherently patient centered, prioritizing the well being and needs of individuals. Um, because of this focus on effective diagnosis, treatment, and care for patient outcomes, because of that, we have to deal with sensitive and personal matters related to people's health, which again requires us to have a higher level of empathy and compassion. I think in general that's true. Uh, there are some some healthcare encounters where maybe that doesn't play out necessarily that way. But I think in general, that is true, right? That empathy and compassion of how we treat our patients is a big dif- differentiator of us and other businesses. And there are other businesses, obviously, that that have some sort of a consumer-centric view of the world. But, uh, but yeah, I think the empathy is where, and compassion is where maybe this uh, takes a little bit of a levels up a time or two. Next, they called out uh, incomplete market dynamics. Uh, so talking about the fact that healthcare does not function like a typical competitive market due to several factors, including uh, information asymmetry between providers and payers. Asymmetry, man. I mean, Chad GPT, uh, you know, I mean, this is it's pretty legit stuff. You know, yeah. anyway, <laughs> the, the urgency in which people need certain types of medical care. And the complexity of the healthcare decision. So these factors, they say, limit the ability for patients to make a purely rational choice based on price and quality. Hmm. And that's true, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you break your arm, you're probably not going to, you know, your kid falls outside, breaks their arm. Again, depending on the severity of it, you're probably not going to come in, sit down, do a bunch of shopping, and then decide where to go, right? You're probably just going to go to the closest place. So yeah, so it's it's an interesting competitive market. All I could think about is information asymmetry would make a really good band name. Yeah. I like it. But I agree. Okay. So here's the, here's the thing that you alluded to earlier, the next bullet point, financing and payment systems. Healthcare involves third-party payers often, right? There's some people that that do, you know, direct pay, but insurance companies, government programs, and that adds to that complexity of the financial system. So traditional payment mechanisms, reimbursement models, negotiations with various stakeholders, all of that requires a higher level of knowledge and expertise and typically is not one that's done at the patient level, right? That's, this is all done kind of between us and the payers, et cetera, that are out there. So, yeah, that's a big differentiator. Last one they call out is the the need for long-term investment and the unpredictability of the market. Now, again, we're talking more brick and mortar here. I think as we've talked in recent weeks, some of the virtual care opportunities, a little more capital light, but generally speaking, healthcare systems require some sort of a, st- a substantial investment in the infrastructure. You're doing this, the pro forma around these capital expenditures are based off of not these immediate days and weeks, the return you're going to get the minute you, you know, plug something in. It's it's over the life expectancy of this piece of equipment or this building or or what have you, right? The counter side to that is it's somewhat unpredictable the demand. So COVID's a great example of that, but certainly even just weather patterns, demographic changes, public health crises, again, even political landscape could influence where people move, how they participate, you know, in life. Yeah, it's hard to kind of marry up this long-term investment not knowing exactly, you know, what the demand's going to be. ChatGPT kind of sums all of this up by saying there are some similarities between health systems and other businesses, but the above unique characteristics make the healthcare industry distinct 
and necessitate specific approaches, regulations, and ethical considerations. I'm wondering if we're missing anything. Do you think we're missing anything, Reed? Well, sure. I'm sure we are. But, you know, we'd love to hear from you. I mean, certainly reach out, let us know if there are other things you'd put on the list of what really makes healthcare different. Yeah, absolutely. Let us know. But um, why don't we do this? Let's take a brief pause. And then when we come back, Reed, we'll get into a little bit more of the differences of hospitals that could lend itself to this fact of hospitals not operating like a traditional business. And that's the organizational structure. We'll do this after this brief pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Let's talk a little bit about just how hospitals are, are actually structured. For those that have worked in healthcare or hospitals for a long time, this is probably somewhat remedial if you're somewhat new to the industry. This may be somewhat helpful, and for most people, it's you know probably somewhere in between. But an article here called Organizational Structure of Hospitals. And so let's you know kind of rattle through. I, I think this is interesting because it, it kind of showcases the different stakeholders as it relates to how we actually do the work that we do. In many cases, uh, you're putting your life in someone's hands, again, as the kind of acuity or the emergency maybe goes up. But hospitals have to function, this article says, in a very precise, you know, executing this high quality service every hour of every day. There's not a lot of room for variability. And they say that organizations that have this sort of requirement typically take on a vertical organizational structure. That means there's many layers of management. And most of the organization's staff working in very specific, narrow, low-authority roles. Unlike you know, the high-tech companies that have sort of a flat organizational structure, in this yeah. particular case, they're saying because of this, this need to be executing and, and all the time and providing high-quality service all the time, you have to build the silos into your organization. So that's, that's the article goes on to outline some of these different layers of management, right? It does. You know, starting at the at the very top, so to speak, again, if you're looking at just a pure org chart, I mean, is the board of directors. Now, this, this varies, obviously, by type of organization that you find yourself uh, within, but everybody has some level of a board. So nonprofits or maybe government uh, or, or districts or things like that, maybe they're elected board members, you know, they're local, you know, community folks that get elected, sometimes appointed, whatever it may be. Sometimes they have some sort of a religious affiliation and still, still have that. I can think of a number of those. A lot of Catholic organizations around the country, at least historically, were. And, and some of those have clergy or you know, some sort of leadership from, from that religious affiliation on the board as well. 
you talk about academic medical centers um, and then more the education side. Sometimes they have oversight from the university. So again, a lot of hospitals out there that you notice share a name with a very famous university, right? And that's kind of where you see that. So board of regents, things like that may double as board members for the hospital. If you go to the more for-profit side, this is where you see people that are asked to be on the board. You know, usually it's because of their background in business or otherwise uh, that they level, you know, some sort of uh, expertise. So this is not unlike other organizations outside of healthcare, right? Board of directors is very, very typical for large organizations, but some of the nuances of how a health system makes decisions via the board of directors and the oversight that the board of directors has in the di- strategic direction that the organiz- that the health system is going at, it's a little bit nuanced and different. So let's go to the next layer down, Reed, which are the executives that oversee sort of those day-to-day operations. Often the board of directors leave it to the executives to ensure that decisions are carried out and those day-to-day operations are performing successfully. There is a CEO or the chief executive officer, the top boss, typically, uh, responsible for everything that goes on in a hospital or a health system or what have you. There's also, if you're in a multi-system environment, you might have multiple CEOs. You know, each hospital in your health system might have a chief executive officer that's kind of overseeing the operations within that particular hospital or care entity. And then, of course, there's other people that have the C, C names behind them, right? The chief nursing officers overseeing mm-hmm. all the nursing operations. The chief medical officer, of course, overseeing sort of the medical care and standardization of care. Chief information officers, the technology people, chief finance officers, chief operating officers. I have seen also chief information technology officers or CITOs in this space, chief clinical officers. Um, All of those have different roles and uh, they comprise sort of the C-suite executive operation, operational oversight, and they're responsible for different parts of the the core business, so to speak. And rolling up to all of those individuals, you know, they kind of set the vision, you know, for the organization in a lot of cases and make, make the tough decisions when needed. But rolling up to those, hospital department leaders, administrators, service line leaders, a lot of different names here, I think. But, but envision, you know, director of women's services or the director of the billing uh, or the business office or, you know, something like that, right? Like they've got probably a staff of folks that report to them, but they're over a, a particular part of the organization. So whether that be care delivery or not. So, you know, I've had good friends through the years that ran uh, materials management, right? I've had, you know, good friends that ran the lab or the facilities or, you know, a particular service line, all of these things. Um, and this is where like you think director of marketing, for example, they're subject matter experts, depending on the size of their staff, they may be the subject matter expert. And they're really meant to, you know, be there to optimize and uh, drive efficiencies within that particular little carve out of the organization. Laddering up again, to you know, a C-suite member uh, who then reports to the CEO who's kind of setting the vision, right? So like all this kind of ladders up. Right. You can see how the sort of that, that vertical siloed approach naturally comes out of this complex environment. The next layer down, Reed, 
are the patient care managers. So within these departments, let's say the labor and delivery department or the emergency department or whatever it might be, there are people who directly oversee patient care. So think of nurse managers or directors of particular services or even supervising physicians who have people under them to give hands-on patient care. And this level of management makes sure that everybody that's on the staff are acting appropriately, doing the best care, they're addressing all their duties, they're complying with all the requirements, etc., And for nurses and even allied healthcare workers, they want to make sure that they're following all the physician orders. And when something goes wrong with a patient or a clinician, these patient care managers are typically the people that handle that problem. And then also one last thing that's added to these these people's roles is they typically oversee scheduling and basic HR functions for the employees in in their departments. And then finally, what we, what we talk about and think about is, is frontline staff. So these are people actually dealing with the, um, the customer, the patient, the consumer, their families, you know, whatever, however you want to think about that. So a lot of times we, we think about doctors, nurses, therapists, dietitians, athletic trainers, you know, all, all the, uh, you know, kind of Ahmed, you know, roles. But this also includes, you know, people working in the in the laundry or patient care techs or uh, people working in the cafeteria, for example. They have very specific jobs and very specific duties. A lot of which, you know, they don't have anybody reporting to them. Like they're they're showing up and executing a particular job on a day to day basis, out in front, working with our patients. And you may think about like all these different layers as we describe them and say, well, this sounds like a other other types of businesses where you have the frontline workers working for managers, which work for directors, which work for VPs, which work for, you know, et cetera. What's different about health systems is that at every layer, there, there is this consideration for requirements. There are expectations. They're all individually trained. And they have to stay on top of their training quite regularly because care protocols change. And so when you think about this, having a hospital or a health system act like a regular business, it gets to be much more complex. When you and I have talked a lot about when you're building change in an organization, you have to build alignment with everybody in the organization. And that's a pretty significant feat. And think about any communications person in a health system right now, how they have to navigate communicating to a variety of different people. It just shows you how complex it is. It doesn't mean we shouldn't consider change. That's the whole point here. And we're not saying this to say that hospitals can't change and, and be different. And in fact, right after this break, you and I are going to come back and talk about ways health systems in this model can reorder the industry and actually make us a little bit more deft and agile to respond to things that are happening today. And we'll do that right after this break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, Reed, we've talked about how hospitals are different than other businesses, and we even went through the organizational structure of hospitals. It was painting kind of a dire picture and saying, can change actually happen within hospital health systems? 
Well, we think that they can. And in fact, we're not the only ones. We found a great article from McKinsey called The Gathering Storm, An Opportunity to Reorder the Healthcare Industry, that actually outlines, despite all of these differences of us opposed to other businesses, how we can actually start to focus on driving change. Let's get into it. Let's do it. So, you know, McKinsey, great source of information, certainly like a lot of the other management consulting firms. And again, they start out initially in this article talking about a lot of the need, right? You know, accelerating affordability, for example, uh, access issues exacerbated by clinical staff shortages in COVID-19, the limited uh, population-wide progress, they're painting this picture that it's like, here's the reality of where we find ourselves, right? Like we're never going to have enough nurses. We've had a nursing shortage the entire 20 years I've been doing this. So at some point it's just, is it not a shortage anymore? It just kind of is what it is or something. I don't know. But it's like, you still have to figure out how to solve for all this. They talk about the gathering storm and that it has the potential to reorder the healthcare industry and put nearly half of the profit pools at risk. That's pretty significant. They even outline a $1 trillion opportunity for improvement through organizational redesign, where you look at your health system or your hospital and redesign it for speed, productivity improvements, portfolio enhancements, and even innovating new business models or new ways to to do care. And I know a lot of executives at health systems right now are seriously looking at this because of the financial challenges that they're they're facing. And even though we've lagged behind other industries, this article, which we linked to in the show notes, by the way, outlines ways that organizations, health systems can navigate their way through. And they call them resilience in the healthcare sector. And they actually outline four actions that can faster and more effectively allow you to outperform your peers. So let's go through those four actions, Reed. Action numero one, numero uno, redesign for speed. You know, it's funny, I was having a conversation about this earlier of just trying to iterate more quickly, and that's probably a podcast for another day, but just this idea that we're always trying to build this bigger vision and like this future state that I'm afraid we'll never get to, right? So it's like, how do you get there quicker? Well, what they're talking about here is you know, a society that transitions towards managing COVID, which I think we're kind of in that place now, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's less... Yeah. It's not a news story every night, right? Kind no, of we're in the endemic um, phase. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they say in here that healthcare leaders might take this opportunity to identify which changes from the past two years are working and which have outlived their usefulness. Of particular importance is for leaders to be even more bold to sustain the gains made during the pandemic and further increase the speed of decision-making and execution. The easy one to point to here is uh, virtual care. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh man, we were, we were chiseling away at that for a couple of years. And then in the matter of, you know, two weeks, we were doing thousands of telehealth visits all of a sudden, (laughs) right? You know, it's like, if we had to, we figured it out. So they outline three things that you can kind of do to redesign yourself for speed. First of all, identify the bottlenecks. Ask yourself, what are the top one to three bottlenecks that are slowing down your organization today? And what has prevented your organization from addressing them? And what can you do to remove them now? Now, I mean, that sounds simple, really simple way to state that. But but again, identifying your bottlenecks. 
The second thing is enhancing your operating model. Are roles and responsibilities for key processes identified clearly? That's an important point there, identified clearly. Have unnecessary stage gates that stymie decision-making been removed? Allow you know decision-making to occur at every level. And then actively monitor any kind of risks that are there. Ask yourself, have trigger points been set to enable immediate action when thresholds for key decisions are crossed? Again, these three three things seem pretty simply stated, but I think it's uh, much more complex than just in the last two minutes that I outlined them. What do you think, Reed? Identifying the bottlenecks is is a big one, right? So enhancing the operation model seems uh, like a lot, but I think just understanding you know where things potentially come to a halt and figuring out ways to solve for that will get you pretty far. You know, that, that in essence will enhance the operating model in a lot of cases. So action number two is to double down on productivity. Increasing efficiency is the objective of every healthcare executive. Um, but for most organizations, incremental improvements can't meet the moment. In order to do this, you have to shift your mindset to adopt to bolder aspirations to raise productivity. And there are a lot of ways in which you can do that. Providers can pursue transformations that address a comprehensive set of value levers, as they say here, looking at clinical operations, external spending, any kind of administrative expenses. Also using current labor shortages and increased competition for talent as an opportunity to reduce the amount of labor. As you've mentioned, right, Reed, is it really a nursing shortage after we've been facing it for 20 years? Or is this a new way where we can roll out innovative technologies, including automation and technology and remote monitoring and stuff like that to allow for a new model of care. That's what's interesting, right? You know, we're doing a lot around this idea of virtual nursing. You know, the question's always like, oh, are you going to replace nurses, in-person nurses with virtual nurses? Uh, No, we will hire literally every nurse we can find. And like, that's not going to change. But we've got to change back to that other area, the operating model, to ultimately understand you know, how to take what we're learning from these labor shortages to say, okay, well, what work can be done virtually so the in-person nurse doesn't get burnt out, right? Like there's, there's other ways to kind of look at this. So yeah, for sure. The third action here, adopt a growth mindset. So they say, although disruptors may have speed, incumbents have their own natural advantages. So these include existing relationships, the trust of the patient or the consumer, depending on exactly how you're you know, thinking about things, uh, and the ability to you know, quickly scale up what works across other markets, right? Like we already have the market share, so to speak, and uh, you know, the discipline around operations and some of those types of things. So again, it's not that disruptors aren't, you know, showcasing some interesting things. They are, and we see that every day. But, you know, the incumbents also have a real opportunity as well. Totally agree. And so that leads us to action number four, which is reallocate constrained resources. The most successful reallocators take a clean sheet, non-incremental approach to allocating strategic, as opposed to maintenance, capital. Focusing on identifying the minimum allocation of maintenance capital to sustain your business. Mm. Just because you've been doing it historically this way doesn't mean you continue to do it that way. The other point they outline here is taking a dynamic approach to budgeting. Sometimes you have to act quickly. When markets shift or new opportunities arise, you got to see your budget as rolling and not fixed. 
So removing those budget anchors to avoid rubber stamping the same allocations every year is a good practice. Then they talk about value, Reed. What do they say about value? Uh, well, you know, again, back to our human resource. Uh, so align talent to value. So ensure that the best talent focuses on the most important growth areas. So invest where you're headed, advance, invest where you're growing. It's not that other parts of the organization are not important, uh, but understanding kind of that, that map, kind of where you're headed as an organization, how you're trying to structure yourself, how you're trying to meet consumer needs and invest in talent and subject matter expertise kind of around that area and, and focus, I think, will get you further than continuing to invest in the historical way that we've done things. So four actions that we can take to start operating, despite our differences of other industries, how we can start operating more as an agile and nimble business in the face of our current industry challenges. So I think these are some good points that they outline here, Reed. I encourage people to listening in to go click through and read the article because there's a lot more data that's in there, uh, including some charts that can kind of help illustrate the fact and show how best practice health systems in our industry are performing right now. But are are we missing something? What else can we do to operate more like a business? And with that... Why don't we take one last pause, and then you and I will be back to close out the show. Another great episode. Uh, this is an interesting topic, certainly, that we'll, we'll talk more and more about. Probably even getting into our own area of how, you know, we've been talking about this some, but how we're, you know, evolving the way that we think about the work that we do. So I'd love to hear from you. Um, again, chime in, let us know. LinkedIn is probably the best way to track us down. Also, website, touchpoint.health, sign up for the TPS report. We'd love to uh, connect with you there as well. So a couple of recommendations before we get out of here. Uh, what do you got today? Reed, um, I'm going to recommend something that's related to what we talked about at the beginning of the show. I'm going to recommend a lawnmower. Oh, yeah. So having said that, you know, just have people running the lawnmowers and making a lot of background noise. Maybe think about, um, I actually mowed the lawn today, surprisingly, and I was using my electric lawnmower. And so I'm going to recommend an electric lawnmower. Now, I'm not going to recommend the one that I have because I have a very small yard and most people don't have small yards. If they're thinking about lawn mowing, they probably want to choose a lawnmower that can work for a large yard. And so what that requires is a different type of electric lawnmower. The Ego Power 21-inch, 56-volt, cordless select cut lawnmower with touch drive self-propelled technology. It's important here when you're talking about electric lawnmowers that they're not only high performance, but they have a big battery. In the smaller lawn that I mow is 30 volts. And I have to tell you, it doesn't last the entire mow. A 56 volt, which my neighbor has this particular lawnmower, it can mow a large lawn and without you having to stop and recharge the battery. Although I would recommend for everybody who owns an electric lawnmower um, to get a spare battery just to have one as a backup. They perform just as good as a regular lawnmower. But here's the trick, Reed. No ambient noise. They're very, very quiet. Sure, you hear them. You sure you hear the motor running. You hear the blade running and all that, but you're not hearing the the gas output, right, or the output of the engine, etc. So, I think that everyone in your neighborhood, Reed, should go out and get themselves an electric lawnmower so we can record podcasts quietly in the future. I mean, at least just my neighbors. I, I mean, I don't care about 
Most everybody, just a few. <laughs> that's my recommendation, particularly to your neighbors. <laughs> that's great. That's great. No, that's good. That's good. That's good. I'm actually going to recommend um, a lake. Well, I mean, really any lake, but I really prefer the Lewis Smith Lake in Alabama. But my point is, uh, it's summertime. You know, we're 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 getting to the end of the school year. Get out. Um, you know, spend some time uh, out and about and away. And, you know, I know we've got, uh, as you're listening to this, just coming off of a long weekend, I guess. Um, and so I know you'll be looking at other vacations this summer and, uh, nothing beats uh, a good late trip, maybe around 4th of July, for example, et cetera. So always nice to be out on the water, relaxing, and, uh, just a reminder to, to spend some time doing that this summer as best you can. So that is my recommendation. I love that recommendation, Reed, um, and particularly since uh, you sent us boat clothes for our little one to wear on a boat. <laughs> so, right. so now we are all set. We have no excuses. And um, Minnesota is the land of, of 10,000 lakes, so we're going to get out on a lake this summer. Yeah, surely you can find one, you know. So no, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Well, uh, thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. That's still the number one way that this show grows, and it's uh, encouraging to continue to hear from you. As we uh, make our way to different conferences and run into people in person and even just online. So reach out. We'd love to hear from you. But for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.